Welcome to the Back to Blue podcast. I'm Naka Kondo from Economist Impact. In part one of this two-part episode, we discuss the environmental impact of deep sea mining on our oceans and marine life, and it being an issue on the COP agenda. In the second part of this podcast, released during the World Ocean Summit Asia Pacific, we dive deeper into the pollution risks of deep sea mining with Craig Smith. Deep sea ecologist and professor emeritus at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. You can register for free to join the World Ocean Summit virtually. A link is in the show notes. Craig, thanks for joining us. Let me start by asking how deep sea mining has emerged as a sector and where things stand today with this industry. Well, deep sea mining has been on the horizon in you know in principle. It's been in thinking. For quite a while, in fact, the idea of mining the deep sea floor beyond the areas of national jurisdiction was a lot of the motivation for the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. A lot of the impetus for getting that set up was an agreement of how to extract and manage and distribute marine resources in international waters from the sea floor. Was again a major driver in, in coming up with the Law of the Sea, and. That was in the 90s when that actually came into effect. Although preliminary work had been done, looking at kind of prospecting, looking at the potential for seabed mining before that, but now it's really heated up. There's a lot of interest now in, in particularly for mining of polymetallic nodules in the abyssal seafloor, the abyssal seafloor in the abyssal Pacific, because they have high concentrations of metals that are of High demand for electric vehicle batteries, in particular, particularly cobalt and nickel, are very important for the, the battery technology that's currently used. And a lot of this cobalt, in particular, is coming. Actually, most of the cobalt for the global supply comes from the Congo, and so there's interest in extending the availability of this material of cobalt, and、uh, also a lot of interest in making money from mining the deep sea. One thing I should say before we get too far is that I'm neither for nor against mining, deep sea mining. I'm a scientist, and I think it's vitally important that all the evidence, scientific evidence, is available to the public about what will happen if deep sea mining goes forward, and the, the environmental trade-offs versus the economic benefits, for example. And so I try to give my an unbiased view of what's going to happen, so that the public can make a informed decision. Although being it without bias is probably not humanly possible. But my main point is, I'm just I want to provide the scientific evidence or data so people can think about it and decide whether or not society should go forward with seabed mining and at what scales. Now there's a lot of interest now. In fact, the country of Nauru let the International Seabed Authority, this governing body that was set up by United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea or UNCLOS, to manage seabed mining in international waters. The country of Nauru has notified in June of 2021 notified the ISA that they plan to begin mining in the deep sea in collaboration with a metals company as early as 2023. So that put a two-year time frame on when the International Seabed Authority needs to generate、uh, environmental regulations for managing the actually exploitation activities in the deep sea, or potentially just allow Nauru and the metals company to mine with existing international under the, in the framework of existing international laws that don't specifically address the potential environmental impacts of seabed mining. So. 
there's a lot of urgency now. There is a greater and greater interest globally in converting to electric vehicles to mitigate climate change CO2 emissions. And so I would, I think that there's <laughs> deep sea, seabed mining is likely to occur quite soon. Uh, there's a lot of pressure for it to occur. And it looks like the te- technology is there and nearly there and the economics may be there. So I think there's a lot of pressure to begin relatively soon. What are some of the disturbances and pollution risks we might expect from deep sea mining? Well, I'm going to focus on polymetallic nodule mining in the abyssal Pacific because that's the area where mining and type of resource that's likely to be mined first, it's closest to becoming to fruition. And I can also comment on some of the other kinds of mining that are further on the horizon. But there are a variety of environmental impacts that are, that must be considered and are of concern from polymetallic nodule mining at the Bissell Sea floor. And this mining hasn't begun yet. There's been a little bit of test mining, testing of equipment, but the mining itself hasn't begun. But there are a number of impacts that we know will occur. And in order to understand them a little bit, it's, it's really useful to, to kind of describe the general environment where this mining will occur. Will occur at four to five thousand meters depths in the in the Toro Pacific, and this is an area that is physically very stable. It has very low current velocities, low current energy from low rates of water flow. It actually has the clearest bottom waters anywhere on the planet. So these animals, the organisms that live there, have evolved in a habitat that has very little suspended sediment, very clear bottom waters. Waters are clear. And the surface ocean waters anywhere in the in the ocean. So, if you've dived, scuba dived in very clear waters and coral reefs, well, the water at the sea floor and the Clarion Clipperton zone, which is targeted with area targeted for mining, is clearer than that. So again, the animals are adapted to very low suspended sediment concentrations. It's physically very stable. Major disturbances don't occur naturally in, in most of this environment. The habitat structure, which includes the nodules themselves that are targeted for mining and the sediments and the, the structures created by animals like sponges and sea anemones, etc., different kinds of soft corals are all very delicate and would be easily disrupted by any kind of mining activity. A couple of other characteristics are important to bear in mind also, and these include the fact that this is a very low-energy environment. There's very little food availability. Food is sinking from the surface ocean four to five kilometers above in forms of form of phytoplankton detritus or the algae that grow on the surface ocean. And so there's this rain of detritus or phytoplankton material to the seafloor, but it's very attenuated. It's a very weak rain of food particles. So it's a very food-poor area which means that animals grow and the ecosystems recover from disturbance very, very slowly because the reproduction, population growth, growth of individual organisms is limited by low food availability. So what's also really interesting about this area, especially that targeted for nodule mining in the equatorial Pacific, but is that this is a very diverse area. It has high biodiversity, kind of unexpectedly. The diversity of organisms there is very high. The biomass is low, but the diversity is very high. In fact, we just published a study recently showing it was a BDNA survey, a survey using modern molecular techniques to look at the diversity of animals at over 300 sites in the world ocean at abyssal depths. And the Clarion Clipperton zone, the area targeted for mining, turns out to be the most diverse of any of these, any regions studied in the abyssal ocean. 
and has a remarkable number of unique, what look like uniquely collected species. And this is, this is important. People might say, well, who cares about the abyss, the abyssal seafloor? Well, turns out that half of the surface of the planet is abyssal seafloor, more than half actually of the surface of our planet, solid surface is abyssal seafloor. So the fact that this area is a biodiversity hotspot compared to more than half of the solid surface area of the earth is important. It's clear that in my mind actually that we want to be careful not to conserve this biodiversity in the face of human activities that go on. Now the mine itself will have a number of environmental consequences that including creating pollution. And one is that, let me just go through how the mining activities will work. The mining will involve a variety of impacts. First of all, this recovering of polymetallic nodules, which are concretions, they're mostly manganese, but they include a lot of iron, nickel, cobalt, copper. These are like little rocks made mostly of metals that are sitting on and in the seafloor. They're embedded in the seafloor. Most of them are in contact with the surface. Some of their surface is visible, but some of them are buried a few centimeters down. And so to collect them for commercial exploitation, miners will need to conduct essentially a dredging operation. They'll put down a big mining head that sucks up the nodules and associated sediments, probably using hydraulic jets and then hydraulic pumps to lift the nodules and sediments from the seafloor and then pump them up a big riser pipe four to five kilometers up to a surface vessel where they'll be collected and then the nodules will be dewatered and a wastewater plume will be put or dewatering plume will be injected back into the ocean at some depth, water column at some depth. And this potential disturbances or impacts on the marine environment from this nodule mining activity, there are a number of them that are substantial. First of all, most of the habitat structure at the abyssal seafloor is, is in the sediments and on the nodules and things like, again, soft corals and sponges that are growing. And, and this habitat will be completely destroyed by the dredging activity. It'll remove the nodules or bury them in, in the vicinity. In the direct path of the mining has the sediment and nodules will be sucked up and the seafloor will be removed to a depth of about 10 centimeters, between 5 and 10 centimeters. And so this is the basic habitat structure of the environment, so that will be destroyed. And then in addition to direct mining effects, the mining machines or mining heads will inevitably create a sediment plume. It turns out that the sediments at the abyssal seafloor in the areas targeted for mining are very fine, very fine particles, mostly clay particles. They're easily resuspended, and once they're resuspended, some of them will stay in suspension for considerable periods of time and can be dispersed by even the weak currents down there, tens of kilometers or more, potentially even more, many more than 10 kilometers. So the, the, sudden, the mining will create a, a disturbance in the direct areas that are mined, but it also in terms of habitat removal and destruction, but it'll also create a sediment plume that'll spread and bury nodules to some distance from the mining operation, potentially kilometers to tens of kilometers, and also create a sediment plume that will spread and cause sediment concentrations to be above background levels or ambient concentrations for considerable distances, at least 10 kilometers away and potentially much further. And again, because the bottom waters here are very clear, 
It doesn't take very much sediment to raise suspended sediment concentrations above background levels and potentially cause disturbances to a variety of different animal activities, including bearing the nodules, which are a unique habitat for a variety of fauna. The sediment plume will also clog the feeding apparatus, suspension feeding structures, and dilate food for deposit feeders, animals that are feeding on a thin veneer of organic matter at the sediment water interface. And it also has the potential to clog the gills or respiratory structures of lots of different animals. And another potential impact from sediment plume created by mining or these sediment plumes is causing a dark cloud of sediment essentially that prevents the transmission of light. It turns out that most species in the deep sea, more than 80% or about 80% of species living in the deep water column, and many of the species at the sea floor use light in their ecology. They use light to signal for mates, to capture uh, prey, to lure in prey, to avoid predators, and to provide camouflage from predators. So these light functions will be obscured by a dark cloud of sediment. And so that's also a potential concern and major environmental impact. Now, it's worth talking about the nodules themselves as a habitat because it turns out that the nodules are a unique habitat. We published a paper in 2016 and a number of other papers have been published since then showing that well, when we studied a 30 by 30 kilometer area of targeted for nodule mining, this is a paper by Amon et al. in 2016, we found that there were 200 species of megafauna, roughly 200 species of megafauna, we estimated living in this 30 by 30 kilometer area. And nearly 100 of them were appeared to be obligate nodule dwellers. They only were found on the manganese nodules. So if the nodules are removed or buried by a sediment, removed by mining or buried by a sediment plume, this habitat will be gone. And because the nodules require millions of years to redeposit or re-precipitate, they grow very slowly. So for them to regenerate, it'll take millions of years. This habitat will be essentially gone in the areas that are directly mined or affected by significant sediment plumes permanently until for millions of years. The soft sediment system, which is the habitat between the nodules, also is very sensitive to disturbance and there are now good data from a couple of different areas where test dredging was done indicating that the soft sediment habitats will take more than 26 to 36 years to recover. There have been some studies next to mining simulation tracks that were conducted decades ago, and we see that the sediment community in terms of the microbial, the microbiota living there, the larger organisms, the animals, the sediment geochemists are all still very, very different from background conditions, pre-mining conditions. So, the nodule habitat won't recover after removal or burial from mining, and the soft sediment habitats will take decades, probably more than a century, to recover from any kind of mining disturbance. Now, the mining is also expected to have a very large footprint on the seafloor. The projections of areas that will need to be mined in order to be economically feasible from the mining contractors indicate that they hope to mine something like 500 square kilometers, directly mine 500 square kilometers per year for up to 30 years for a single mining operation. So that's about 15,000 square kilometers directly mined from one mining operation. And it turns out the, the mineral resources themselves are also distributed in a way that actually is likely to one could say amplify the spatial impact 
from sediment plumes. And the nodules that are mineable, the mineable resources, tend to be distributed in bands of a few kilometers wide and 10 to 20 kilometers long. It matches the ridge and trough topography of the abyssy floor in this region. And so on the, in certain areas, in the tops of ridges and the sides of ridges, there are nodules and the troughs between them. There are no nodules and those are not mineable. So it's likely that the mining will occur in narrow bands or bands two to four kilometers wide, extending for tens of kilometers. And then in between these bands, there are unmineable areas that are on the order of five to ten kilometers wide that will be exposed to sediment fluids spreading laterally. And so the impact from the sediment plumes themselves is likely to be, some we estimate, something like three to five times the area directly impacted by mining. So if 15,000 square kilometers are impacted directly by mining, this could translate into something like 75,000 square kilometers total impact from resedimentation and from turbidity plumes, et cetera, spanning these intervening approximately 10-kilometer gaps between the mineable nodule resources. So it's clear that the, the spatial impact of even a single mining operation will be very large. And if all 16, or actually I think there are now 17 exploration claims that are active in the clearing Clipperton zone, if all 17 of those were mined, which is conceivable over the next century or so before any mined area might recover, then the total area of impact could be something like the size of France. So a, a very big area potentially impacted by mining. So this could be, if all the exploration contracts that are in existence now were mined, this could be one of the largest footprints of any single industrial activity on the planet. That's important to about. Another impact I haven't mentioned yet is, well, actually I didn't mention the dewatering plume, which will be injected back into the water column from a mining operation. And this will consist of sediments that are separated from the nodules on the surface vessel and it's not clear where these sediments will be re-injected. I think the metals company is one of the mining contractors who's talking about injecting it at a 1,000 meters. And a sediment plume at a 1,000 meters has the potential to affect animals that we call vertical migrators. These are fish and crustaceans that occur at depth in the ocean, 500 to 1,000 meters during the daytime to avoid predation for predators, and then they migrate up to the surface ocean at night to feed. And it turns out they're an important component of the biological carbon pump the biological mechanisms that are taking carbon from the atmosphere and injecting it into the deep ocean where it can be sequestered and reduce the impacts of CO2 on global climate change. So that's a concern. If the wastewater is dewatering plume is injected at 1,000 meters, it has the potential to affect vertical migrators and the biological carbon pump. And these vertical migrators are also forage species for things like tuna, that are, of course, exploited by humans, and so they it could affect fisheries that humans depend on. There are a couple of other pollution impacts I, that need to be considered in the mining. One of them is noise generation. turns out that seabed mining is very likely to create significant noise. We just published a paper in Science in July, actually, where we did our best job we could for modeling the potential noise generated and noise pollution from deep-sea mining operations for polymetallic nodule mining. And we couldn't get enough data from contractors. Uh, there, were, there weren't available. Uh, so we used some analogs of deep-sea mining equipment to make an estimate to model what the mining noise generation would look like in the abyssal seafloor in the clearing clipper design. And so we used shallow water dredging heads that 
are operating similarly to what is likely to be used in the deep sea is to model uh, mining heads. We use pumps, noise generated from pumps for shallow water dredging to lift the dredge pile up to surface vessels. And then we use offshore production and processing platforms, things used in the oil industry to, to serve as a model for what the ship noise would be from the mining operation. And what we found was quite, quite concerning, actually. It turns out that if our model is correct, a single mining operation has the potential to raise noise levels above background uh, in this deep sea and the clearing clipper zone to distances as far as 500 kilometers away. And that's partly because these mining operations are relatively noisy and this is a relatively quiet environment. And so we don't really have a good understanding of the sensitivity to noise pollution in these deep sea environments, but we expect the sensitivity to be high because these animals have evolved in a very quiet environment. And generally there's no sunlight in these environments, so sound or vibrations are important sensory stimuli for their behavior. Sound and vibrations are an important sensory modality, we say, for these organisms. So we expect that especially if mining goes on in one area for 30 years and noise levels are above ambient levels to hundreds of kilometers away, that there's a good possibility that this could have significant noise pollution impacts on the biota in this region. And so we feel it's really important to consider mining noise pollution and because we know so little about what kind of harm will result from noise levels above ambient in these environments. And there's, there's a lot of biodiversity in this region, including marine mammals like beaked whales and sperm whales, et cetera, that use noise a lot in their ecology, dolphins. Um, we think it's important that we get a lot more information about potential noise pollution from mining and that if mining goes ahead, it's very cautious or uses precautionary levels of allowable sound until we get a better understanding of what the noise generated by mining will the impacts of the noise generated by mining on the marine biota in the region from the surface ocean down into to the abyssal sea floor. One other source of pollution that I haven't talked about, and that is the, the potential for heavy metals from the of nodules to get into marine organisms in the water column marine food webs. So this is not very well understood. There are heavy metals in nodules that are potentially toxic, including things like copper. And so we still are just beginning to understand how whether the metals from nodules will become solubilized and potentially get into marine organisms and what the impacts might be. But there is potential for some of these metals, especially from wastewater plumes that are injected at a thousand meters where they might affect the forage fish of, fish of tuna. There's a potential for these metals to get into food chains getting back to humans. But we don't know how large that potential is. How much of the pollution risk is modifiable? How much is down to technology, expertise, and commitment of the companies to minimize impacts? Or is this just inherently going to cause these problems? Well, my view from having worked in this environment a lot, I've led seven expeditions to the Clarion Clifford Zone and dived in submersibles and ROVs, is that most of these impacts are very, very difficult to mitigate. I don't think there is, for example, the direct destruction of the habitat where mining occurs is inevitable. That cannot be 
exploited, and there's no way to restore that habitat. There are no restoration techniques that would work in the at the abyssal seafloor. Even if we thought there were, it would take decades to verify that they actually do work because of the recovery rates are so slow. And the cost of habitat restoration would be astronomical. If you're talking about restoring tens of thousands of square kilometers of seafloor in and shallow water, habitat restoration from dredging activities costs something like a million dollars per square kilometer. And we're talking about tens of thousands of square kilometers. So, and it would, the cost would be much greater in the deep sea. So habitat restoration is not an option, even though some people are talking about it. It's just not realistic. Preventing creation of sediment flumes is really not possible because if you move along the seafloor in this region where the sediments are easily resuspended with a very small remotely operated vehicle, robotic vehicle the size of a VW, and try to move without creating a sediment plume, resuspending sediments, you can't. It just is so easily resuspended. When you move, you create this big plume of clay-sized sediments that come up into the water column. And these nodule mining heads are going to be moving at one to two knots over the seafloor, big heads the size of houses. These are huge structures blasting water in front of them and pumping out a, a sediment plume behind them. So it's not possible that they can do the mining without creating big sediment plumes that, that will then spread. Now, some of the engineering modeling suggests that most of the mass of the plumes will drop down relatively quickly to the seafloor over distances of maybe a kilometer or so. But the problem is the waters are so clear down here that even if a tiny percentage of the sediment that's resuspended remains in the water column, it's still creating concentrations that are way higher than background levels and are likely to have major ecological impacts. So quite frankly, I don't think there's a way to avoid creating sediment plumes and there's no way to avoid destroying the habitat and no way to restore it at the seafloor. Now noise, there may be ways of reducing noise generation. There's been so little done actually on the on the noise that's likely to be created that it's really, you know, it's it's hard to know how they could modify their technologies. Certainly the dewatering plume, its impacts could be mitigated to some degree depending on where it's re-injected in the water column. A lot of deep sea ecologists think the best way to do that would be to inject it back at the sea floor where there's always already a lot of disturbance and a sediment plume created. So it would just combine with the seafloor plume and have potentially the smallest impact on the total water column. So that's one way. Yeah, I think most deep sea ecologists think that's much better than injecting it at a thousand meter depth, but that also raises costs. So I think we have to be realistic about what the environmental disturbances will be from this mining and consider that in, in how we go forward. And my, my own personal view is that because a lot of these impacts will be chronic, they will only, because the mining occurs over, over years, so we, we can't really get an understanding of chronic impacts until we create similar disturbances for years, which is not really feasible before mining. I don't think we're going to have a good understanding of this intensity and spatial scales of a single mining operation until one has been going on for at least a decade. So yeah. I actually think if we do go forward with deep sea mining, the most in terms of understanding and controlling, managing the environmental impacts, the best way would be to start with one mining operation and monitor it very well for a decade and then decide how and if we can scale up. Can we have another similar mining operation at the other end of the clarion Clipperton zone 2,000 kilometers away? Or is it just the impact so large that we really don't want to 
do any more mining. Well, Craig, thanks so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Okay, excellent. Well, thanks very much for doing this story. Thank you for listening to Back to Blue podcast, part of an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation on the Health of the Ocean. I spoke to Craig Smith, deep sea ecologist and professor emeritus at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Craig, thank you so much for all of your thoughts and insights. You can find more information on the Back to Blue initiative at backtoblueinitiative.com. Or you can visit the link from the show notes to access more relevant information from the initiative. Thank you for listening. <music>